I have some habits in my life that are hard to break. Even habits that we would say are bad habits uh, are hard to break. And why is that? Why do we have such a hard time breaking bad habits? Like, we know it's bad for us. If we call it a bad habit, we're like, yeah, I know, I keep doing that thing. Like, why can't we stop it? It might be eat less sugar, uh, stop watching so much TV, break a gambling addiction, quit spending so much time and money shopping, stop scrolling social media for you know, hours or however long on end. But why is it so hard to stop doing something that we know is bad? We call it a bad habit. Why can't we just stop it? And the reason is because we really want to do it. <laughs> it. We like it. We like what it does for us. We like how it feels. We go to that thing because of what it does for us. Uh, our brain and our body have developed a craving for it. And often we'll do these habits without even thinking about them. And even if we wouldn't call them addictions, you know, like in an official way, uh, they still have, our relationship to them has traits of an addiction, dependency, compulsion, not able to stop, uh, getting upset when something's in the way of getting that thing, of kind of feeling like, this is what I do, like I get, you know, get mad at whoever it is, our spouse or kids or a friend or a coworker. like I need this thing and you're stopping me from getting to it. And our relationship with them often has traits of an addiction. And this series, ran the Joy of Being Loved, is that's what God's made us for, the joy of being loved by him and relation, it's relational joy. And joy is how love feels. Love's, or joy is saying, I'm glad to be with you. I want to be with you. I like you. I'm happy to see you. And we are made for the joy of being loved by God no matter what. The joy of being loved no matter what by God. And I want to share with you just a little quote that's very relevant today of what inspires this message. Um, it's from this book called The Other Half of Church. It's kind of talking, one of the things it talks about is joy and how that's so important for us as Christians and as people that we're made for joy. And so let me just read uh, two paragraphs from this that'll set us up for talking about today. It says, Since joy helps us regulate painful emotions, when it runs low, we will look to non-relational sources to stop the pain. Soil, meaning like the soil of our lives. Soil that is low on joy is primed for growing addictions. When our brain looks for joy and does not find it, we become vulnerable to pseudo-joys. These are substances and experiences that trick our brain to temporarily shut off the unpleasant emotions, but they are non-relational and ultimately unsatisfying. Joy substitutes can appear on the surface to be normal things like food, social media, and shopping. The more obvious pseudo-joys are alcohol, drugs, sugar, and porn. Low-joy cultures will see an increase in these pseudo-joy addictions. Increasing our joy will naturally calm our cravings for pseudo-joys. And building joy should be an integrated part of any addiction program. So those words, what it's saying, since joy helps us regulate our painful emotions, and if our joy is low, we're going to look for joy substitutes, joy replacements, pseudo-joys, joy that uh, really isn't the joy we were made for. And what we see here, what's this telling us, is what happens when we don't have that relational joy, that relational joy that God has made us for. And we can now ask, why is it so hard to stop doing what we know is bad for us and what we know we should stop? And it's because we really need joy and those things. We're always going to be making a path to joy. It's like, you know, and animals are always going to be looking for food. And we are made for joy, so we're always going to be looking for it. And when we found something that gives us a little sense of joy, um, you know, some of the things they mentioned, TV and social media or alcohol or drugs, whatever it is, it's like that thing that gives us that little hit of joy, we're going to keep going toward and we create a dependency upon it. And we really need joy. We're ready. We're made for joy from God. But if we can't get that relational joy, we will settle 
for something else that gives us a fix. And the Bible has a name for turning to something besides God to get what only God can give us, and the word is idolatry. It's worship of false gods, replacing God, finding God substitutes in our life. And this was a big problem for the people of Israel. Uh, Their story is that they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and God comes in and rescues them, and he says to them, Worship only one God. There's no other God but me. Do not make, and and you could translate it as it says, don't make idols, but don't make God substitutes. Don't put anything before me. I'm the only God. Worship me alone, and don't turn to anything else. But they often, there's these, uh, they would often turn away from God, and there's these books called the Prophets in the Old Testament. Prophets are really just spokesmen for God, uh, and they come and they talk to the people of Israel, giving them a message from God, and when you read some of the prophets, actually, I've heard some one person describe it as it's like being in the apartment uh, next to a couple that's having like a marriage quarrel, and the one partner is saying, "You've cheated on me. You've left me. You abandoned me. Why did you turn away from me? You betrayed me." And it's like being in the apartment next door and hearing this fight going on. It's the prophets coming and saying to God's people. This is God's message. Like, what are you doing? Why have you turned away from me? Why are you cheating on me? What are you doing? And it's this marriage lover's quarrel going on. And we're looking at the prophet Jeremiah today. And he lived uh, 600 years before Jesus, so 2,600 years ago. And he has these sermons he's giving to the people of Israel. So we're looking at a 2,600-year-old sermon, but it's still very relevant today. And Jeremiah lived in a very difficult time period in the nation of Israel where um, well, you think about Ukraine being invaded, and uh, Jeremiah lived in a time when his country was being invaded uh, by the Babylonian Empire, and eventually they come in and take it over, and they destroy the capital, and then Jeremiah lives through all of that. And so he's telling the people, look, disaster is coming. This invasion is coming because you've turned away from God. And we're looking at a part of the sermons that he wrote then. And something for you to consider for this morning is, what's a bad habit that you can't seem to stop? What's a bad habit that you can't seem to stop? Or maybe it's just something you know, like, I couldn't live without this. Maybe you wouldn't call it a bad habit, because sometimes we do things that are kind of bad for us, but we don't even realize it's a bad habit. It's like, every day I do this, no matter what. You know, if I think about my routine of things I want, every day it's like coffee. If you told me what's the one thing you couldn't, you know, live without, it'd be like, what would my life be like without coffee, I have it every single day. Or like often when I'm tired at, at night, it's like what all I want to do is watch a show on Netflix that Katie and I are watching. It's like those are things that it's like they are kind of automatic. They just happen. I might not even think of them as bad habits, but what's that for you? What's a bad habit you can't seem to stop? And I'll just give you 10 seconds to kind of think about that. Maybe write it down. As we look at the prophet Jeremiah, we'll see this passage in uh, the first part we're going to look at, Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is where God is talking about uh, his bride. So verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you could title that God's bride. And it says this, Jeremiah, starting verse 1, chapter 2, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. 
And so really it's looking back. God's looking back is like, look, you, you were devoted to me in your youth. Remember when you were a young bride and we got married, even though it kind of worked uh, there's disaster even before the ink on the uh, marriage certificate was dried. But when God brings them out of uh, Egypt, he says, I'm bringing my people out to worship me at the mountain that I've chosen. And he brings them to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai is where they're given the Ten Commandments. And as we talked about, the first one of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. And so God says to them, look, look, this is what I've done for you. I brought you out of Egypt. I, I want you to be my treasured possession. I want you to be my people. And here's what this relationship is going to look like. Like, here's my Ten Commandments that psalms, sums up everything else I'm going to command to you, is that I, don't, I want this to be an exclusive relationship. Me and you, I don't want you cheating on me with other gods. Me and you. This is, so you can think of it as a wedding ceremony, almost like vows. Like, God is like, ah, this is what I've done for you, and so that's what I'm vowing to you, and this is what I want you to vow to me. So it's like a wedding ceremony. And God, we see in these verses of Jeremiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he set them apart for himself. That's what it means to make uh, them holy. Is that God, I'm setting you apart from all the other nations, and I'm marrying you. That's what happens in marriage, right? We set one person apart from everyone else, and we call them holy, set apart, therefore, me. And he says, I led you, I protected you. And what this passage is going to be about is God taking his unfaithful bride to court, for cheating on him. That's what this passage is about, that God is taking his unfaithful bride, the people of Israel, the people of God, to court for cheating on him. And our focus is going to be uh, verses 12 through 13, but we're going to look at the other verses going up to that. And what those verses say, uh, verse 13, says, my people have committed two evils, God says. And so we're going to look at what are these two evils. So our, the, the kind of main thought we're going to be filling in is cheating on God is evil. Cheating on God is evil, and we're going to be answering why uh, as we go through this passage. So cheating on God is evil. First, in chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, cheating on God is evil because of who you're cheating on. Cheating on God is evil because of who you're cheating on. So chapter 2, verse 4, God's saying to them, he's opening his court case, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. I'm opening up my court case. Then he goes through these things he's done that I've led you, I rescued you, like I provided this land for you, showing I've devoted myself to you, I've rescued you, I'm leading you, I'm protecting you. Like I've devoted myself to you. That's obvious. Like so he's saying, Listen up, Israel, look, I've done all this stuff to you. I've done devoted to you. Then in verse six he says, uh, they did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt? And why are they not saying that? Because God didn't go anywhere. You're just not saying you don't say, Where is the Lord? Because he never let them down. He was always faithful to them. He was committed to them. So there's nobody saying, like, where is God now? <laughs> like, he said he was going to be with us, but where is he? And he's saying, you can't bring that charge against me. You can't ask that. Uh, and he says in verse 5, uh, what wrong did your fathers find in me? God's saying, I did so much for you. And so what is this wrong? Like, you're, you, you didn't find any wrong in me. I didn't abandon you. And so he's opening up this court case by saying, Look, look who you're cheating on. Like, I didn't ever leave you. I've always been there for you. And in verse 8, again he says, first he talks about unfaithful people, then he talks about unfaithful leaders. Verse 8, the priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. And so the priests, none of the leaders could say, where, the people couldn't say, where is the Lord? The priests and leaders couldn't say, where is the Lord? He's saying, I was always there for you. I didn't abandon you. I didn't forsake you. I have been faithful. 
And so he's saying the people were unfaithful, the leaders weren't faithful, but God wasn't unfaithful. And so basically saying, you know, cheating on God is evil because of who you're cheating on. Their cheating is unwarranted because, you know, you might say like, well, you know, God kind of left. We didn't know where he was or like he was kind of abusing us or he was doing this. But he's saying, no, this is unwarranted. Like who you're cheating on is the faithful one. He's done nothing to give them a reason to leave, to be dissatisfied with this marriage. And so cheating on God is evil because of who you're cheating on. The one who rescued you, led you, provided for you, has always been faithful, never left or forsook you. Second, cheating on God is evil because of who you're cheating with. First, cheating on God is evil because of who you're cheating on, God. Second, cheating on God is evil because of who you're cheating with, verses 9 through 12. Verse 9, it says, Therefore I'll contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. And again, he's saying, he's like, look, there's no reason for you to be cheating, and so now I'm going to contend with you in court. I'm bringing this before the judges. He says, uh, verse 10, For the cross to the coasts of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desperate, desolate, declares the Lord. And so he's like, okay, look around at all the nations. See if there's ever been such a thing that somebody changed out their gods. Like, oh, we're worshiping this god, and then they just changed them out. Like, oh, we're just going to start worshiping another god. And he's like, there's not been a nation that's changed its gods. But he says, my people have changed their god. They've changed their glory, me, the one true god, the glorious god who uh, made everything and rescued them. They've exchanged me for something that does not prophet. They have traded the one true God for non-gods. And in verse 12 he says, this is appalling. This is shocking. And so it's like, you left your husband for him? <laughs> Who are you leaving God for? Like, it's kind of, you know, it's maybe it's kind of uh, not a way we like to think of things, but it's like that, you know, God's like a total 10, and you left him for a total negative 10. And it's like, who are you leaving God for? Like, you're cheating on God with this? Like, this is appalling. This is shocking. Why would you do that? In verse 13, he says, They've forsaken the fountain of living waters for broken cisterns. And cisterns are like these holes that are often dug into like limestone uh, areas in the land. And then you would kind of plaster the inside with some lime plaster. And then you would find a way for water to get directed into this cistern. So you have this, when there's not rain, when there's not streams, you know, the land of Israel uh, has wet and dry seasons. But if you want some water during the dry season, it's like, okay, let's build a cistern, get it nice and sealed up, and we've got to let the water drain into it. And you'll hopefully be able to use that water um, throughout a, a dry period. And they often developed cracks, and they would seep out. And so he's saying, you made these cisterns for yourself that are broken and cracked, they're not holding water, but you left the fountain of living water. Living water in the Bible is like water that's flowing in a stream. It's not just sitting somewhere. It's like coming out of a, um, not a well, what do you call it? Spring, coming out of a spring. And so it's like this flowing living water. It's like you have this, (laughs) this awesome flowing river of living water, and you left it for like these self-made gods that you've appointed that don't hold any water, they're broken, they're useless they're not doing anything for you and he says in verse 5 you went after worthlessness and became worthless, verse 8 he says you went after things that do not profit they don't benefit you, verse 11 he said you cha- they change their glory for that which does not profit so they're leaving this thing 
that benefited them in all these ways, and they're going to something that's worthless, doesn't profit them, and is just doing nothing for them. And so cheating on God is evil because of who you're cheating with. And lastly, the last verse we'll look at, verse 13. Uh, so cheating God is evil because of who you're cheating on. Cheating on God is evil because of who, who you're cheating with. And cheating on God is unsatisfying. That's what he makes, the case he makes in verse 13. Cheating on God is unsatisfying. So he says, verse 13, I'll back up to verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, be shocked. Be utterly, utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. So you have this living water versus this self-made cistern that's not holding anything. There's nothing in it for you. You can't even drink from it. And there's a reason that the word idol in the original Hebrew language is a synonym for vain or empty or worthless. An idol is a false god. And they talk about how you... You have, there's this funny passage in Isaiah, another prophet, and he's like, you cut down a tree, and you use half of it to build a fire and cook your dinner, and the other half you carve into a little image, and then you worship it as a god. He's like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> what he's, I mean, he's basically saying, like, what are you guys dumb? Like, you use one half for firewood, and then the other half you call a god? Like, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and he's saying here, like, why are you doing this? You have this stream, and you're like, yeah, let's just leave that stream and build our own thing over here that can't do anything for us. Why would you trade one for the other? And we're just going to flip for a little bit to John chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. This would be on page 888 in the Black Bibles. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 18, page 888. And so this, we've been looking at an Old Testament prophet 600 years before Jesus. And John chapter 4, we're going to be looking at Jesus picking up this same theme of living water and coming to God as that fountain. So John chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. I'm just going to read it and we're going to just going to make a few comments about it. Page 888 for using the Black Bibles. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I'll give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I'll give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. 
and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the story goes on, but we're just going to stop in that part of it. And Jesus goes from talking about the physical water at the well, he uses it to start a conversation, and then he starts talking about spiritual water, the water that Jeremiah was talking about, that you've left the stream, this fountain of living water, and he's saying, he identifies her self-made cistern that held no water. Um, Go bring your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. You're right. (laughs) You've had five husbands, and the person you're with now is not your husband. So her bad habit was men, hoping they'd quench that thirst that Jesus is talking about. Like, you keep coming to this well, and you're going to keep being thirsty, and implying also, you keep going to these men, and you're going to keep being thirsty. But come to me, and you will never thirst again. And Jesus invites her to come back to the living water. And Jesus gives other invitations like this. John 6, 35, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John chapter 7, verses 37 to 38. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so Jesus is inviting a whole world of people that have turned away from the fountain of living water, turned away from God, and are cheating on God with self-made, broken cisterns that hold no water. And we could act, I'm not making a joke here, I'm not saying this to be a joke, because it's very serious in the context that this statement will be said and in the Bible, is that we all could come into this room and say, Hi, I am Mitch, I am a serial adulterer. We could all say that, because we have so often abandoned, committed adultery against God for other things, that we've abandoned the fountain of living waters, the one who committed to us, who said, I love you, I'm committed to you, I'm going to be with you, I'm only here for your good. And then we say, you know what, I'm going to try some other things out. I kind of like to sleep around a bit, God, and see if this is really worth it. And that's literally how the Bible talks about it. I'm not like just trying to create shock language. Like the Bible talks about, you guys are sleeping with other gods. You guys are cheating on them. You've committed adultery. And God takes them to court, as we saw. He's saying, look, look world, look, calls the heavens and the earth to witness. My people are cheating on me, and why? I've done nothing that should lead them to cheat on me. That they're, and who are they cheating on me with? And how can we come back to God after cheating on him that all of us could be in a support group saying, I'm a serial adulterer against God. And the reason we can come back to him is God himself has paid the cost of us sleeping around on him, of us cheating on him, of us going to other gods when we are supposed to be committed to him. And just think of the damage that adultery or an affair does to a relationship, and how hard that would be to bring two people back together, of how much pain would have to be worked through. And God is saying to all humanity, you all have been unfaithful to me, and yet you can come back to me. And how is it that we can come back to him? It's because he, the only, that's how forgiveness works, that I can forgive you and we can be reconciled. And forgiveness is always costly to the one who's giving it and the one who's receiving it has no cost to pay. Because that's what forgiveness is. It's saying, instead of paying you back for cheating on me, I'm going to pay the cost myself. All the damage and all the ugliness and all the cost of you breaking this relationship, I'm going to take on myself. I'm not going to seek payback. And you can come back to me. And that's why the cross is you know, a symbol of death. Because that's what we did. We brought death into our relationship with God. And then God says, I'm going to pay for this so you can come back and you can have life. And that's why this cross can be look beautiful because 
uh, in the window because it is it was ugly and terrible because adultery is ugly and terrible but the cross is the beauty of God's love that he says pay for it you can come back I mean isn't that amazing that it's like you can come back and we can get back together again and I'm just taking care of it for you so the cross shows us the ugliness of cheating on God and God's costly love to bring us back and the cross proves his love for us and it proves he's worthy of our love that who better this the stream is still flowing and he says you can come back to it I'm not going to cut it off like well I'll bring you back in, but I'm going to remind you every day of how bad you messed up and you're going to come into it. And you're not going to get that water, but you can just be around and I'm just going to kind of ignore you, give the cold shoulder. I'm going to, but it's like, no, he says, I'm going to run out to you. As soon as you come back to me, I'm going to run out to you with joy and bring you back in. So as we think about making this personal, if Jesus were having this conversation with us at the well, imagine that Jesus is at the well and he's identifying what is the thing you keep going to. What self-made cistern, what's your self-made cistern that holds no water? What's your bad habit that you'll go to again and again, but it doesn't satisfy? And we can ask the question, or the statement, make this statement that what makes a bad habit bad is what we want from it. What makes a bad habit bad is what we want from it. Food, gift from God and a great thing from God when we're thanking him for it instead of turning it into the thing that we're looking to do for us what only God can do for us. Or alcohol. The Bible doesn't say don't drink alcohol, uh, but alcohol becomes a bad thing when we use it as a God replacement. Um, sex and stuff. You know, all the things in this world, most of, most of the things in this world were given to us as God made them as gifts for us to enjoy, but not in the end of themselves, that, oh, this is what it's all about. It's all about food. It's all about sugar. Yes, yes, yes. It's supposed to be, God, thank you for this thing you brought. It's supposed to give us connection with him, just like how Katie and I provide for our boys. That's a connection with them. And God's providing for us. And it's supposed to build a connection. And so when, some, when a good thing goes bad is when we use it to replace God, that we use God's good gifts as God's substitutes, that we replace him and we use them. And so when we want something to do for us what only God can do when we cheat on him, that's when a bad habit becomes bad. And your God is whatever you direct your faith, hope, and love toward for joy. Your God is whatever you direct your faith, hope, and love toward for joy. But God replacements, as we've seen, are evil, and they're unsatisfying, and they're foolish. And true joy is relational, and so non-relational sources will never work for us. So what we want to do in this message, you know, last week was talking about coming out of hiding to be loved. And this week we're really talking about coming out of hiding our God replacements, our God substitutes, our bad habits. And it's like, well, I can't admit that thing is, you know, something I'm cheating on God with because what's he going to do about it? And we saw last week, well, what does he do about it? Uh, if we come out of the dark and come into the light, come out of hiding to be loved, not come out of hiding to be shamed, to be rejected, but we come out of hiding to be love, to receive the joy of being loved no matter what. And so we can be real about our bad habits. We can be real about our pseudo joys we turn to. We can be real about our addictions with God. And I just want to pass this out. This hopefully is just a it's first, I'm going to walk through each part of this.
All right, so the first, this is like, how do we identify those things we're turning to to replace God? And so the step one is first identifying the bad habit. So it's what do you turn to, when, and why, meaning what do you want from it? So, for instance, you could say, it's when I am stressed, I turn to TV for comfort. That makes sense? So it's what, what you turn to, when you turn to it, and why. Or when I'm stressed, maybe I said stressed already, I turn to sugar for, I don't know, to feel good, feel better. Like I've had you know, a hard day, I just want this thing. And so let's take a little moment to fill it in. When I am blank, I turn to this for this benefit. What do you turn to, when, and why? And let's give you 30 seconds. So the problem isn't necessarily the thing that we turn to, but it's what we want from it. And so there's the surface idol, which could be sugar, TV, or alcohol, or getting things done. And then there's the heart desire beneath it. It's like, what's the desire below the desire? What do I want below the want? It's like, well, I want sugar, but why I want sugar is because I really want this. I want comfort, or I want to feel happy, or I want to have this. And so it's, you know, what are you really thirsting for? What are you really craving and seeking what are you asking this thing to deliver you from? We don't just want sugar. We want what sugar does for us. We don't just want TV. But we want what TV does for us. And this, might, I've shared this in a couple of contexts, but um, I, and it might be surprising to you, but I have a, my thing is food. I go to food. And you're like, wow, man, you can eat a little more food. But, um, but <laughs> it's just my metabolism helps me to hide the thing that I go to all the time. Like I don't know how many times I find myself just throughout the day I'm just standing in the pantry just like looking around. And we try not to buy very much sugar, very much treats, because I will eat them, because I go to them. And I'm even trying to figure out, well, why do I go to this thing? Sometimes it's when I'm bored. Sometimes when I'm stressed. Sometimes it's when I want to not deal with something. It's like, let me just walk around in the pantry and look for something that's sugary. And so that's a problem for me. I'm going to it for, for comfort or, or just to relieve boredom. And it's like I'm try, still trying to dig out what that is, you might be like, well, you know, it doesn't seem like a big deal, Mitch. We all have sugar. But as I paid more attention to how much I go to it and how hard I have of saying no to it, I realize how much it has a hold on me. Because it's like, wow, I don't have an addiction. Okay, don't do that for a week. And it's like, <laughs> I can't, you know, am I going to go without that for a week? You know, we suddenly find something. Whether you want to call it addiction or not, that doesn't matter to me. It's just, that's why we're using the word bad habit. And maybe you're a little more willing to call it that. So secondly would be, that's the thing you turn to and when and why. But the question is, how does it ultimately fail you? God calls it a self-made cistern. And if they're unsatisfying, the question is, well, why do we settle for less? Like, why are we settling for those things? Why would I replace God with sugar or Netflix? Like, it just seems so dumb, right? Like, <laughs> of course God's going to be better than that. But the reasons why we settle for less is because it's easier. Relationships take a lot of work. Uh, 
having a good marriage takes a lot more work than looking at pornography. They take more work. Relationships take work. And junk food is easier. You know, not just like literal junk food, but just junk food in life. Like, it's all easier. And so first, we, don't, we settle for less because it's easier, and we settle for less because we don't believe there's something better. We think this is as good as it gets. There's nothing better than this. And so we stay, you know, why do people stay in bad relationships or bad jobs? It's like, well, at least they have it. Uh, and I don't know if there's something better out there. So the second question you'd be asking, you could put, you know, on this piece of paper, how does it fail you? And then third, you'd be asking, how does God give it to you better? How is he a better source of what you're looking for? Joy, of comfort, or of peace? He's the fountain of living waters. And notice that nowhere in the Bible are we told to give up our desires. Uh, it tells us our desires can be leading us astray, but we're told not to give up our desires, but to find a better source of fulfilling them and satisfying them. Same desires, better source. We've settled for less than we were made for. And so we need not only to see the badness of the thing that we're going to, because that won't get us away from it. We need to see the goodness of how God is better than that thing. And uh, you know, maybe a, a modern example of what does it look like to have broken cisterns versus the living water. It's like imagine if you're at a wedding and it's like an open bar and you can get whatever soda or juice or alcohol you want, um, but you find somebody that's kind of going to all the cups on the tables, have you know that little dribble of like, somebody didn't drink the whole cup, so there's like a little dribble of Mountain Dew left, and they're just going to the tables, and they're like, getting little sips of that, and going to each one, and you'd be like, what are you doing? But it's like, oh, you can go get stuff on tap over there, you know, there's like a whole, you don't have to sip somebody else's backwash, like, why are you doing this? Why are you going to these yucky, broken cisterns for these little sips? When all this stuff is over on tap at the open bar, like, what, why are you doing this? And we, this is what we'll do in life, the, seeing the badness of it. Why do I keep going for these little sips of scrolling social media? And it's like, I get done with that, I just feel worse. And it's like, why would we do that instead of going to God living, fountain of living water on joy, on tap? And I just want you to you know, say to the person next to you uh, that God, God is most worthy to give your heart to you say to that person next to you, God is most worthy to give your heart to. And as, we're, as you're thinking about how does God give that thing to you better that you're looking for, you can find some passages that deal with this. Or if you don't know a passage, ask somebody. Like, I think I go to this thing for peace. Can you tell me a passage where it says God gives me peace? And then step four. Step one, what's the bad habit? Step two, how does it fail you? Step three, how does God give it to you better? Step four, how can you turn to God for what you want instead? And so that's the second part of the sheet. And so you wrote on the top, when I'm stressed or whatever, I turn to food for comfort. You can say, now on the second part, when I am stressed, instead of turning to food for comfort, I will turn to God for comfort by, and then you can give something you do instead. When I'm standing in the pantry, okay, what am I looking for here? Like, okay, how am I going to go to God for comfort? So for instance, it could be, when I'm stressed, instead of turning to getting things done for peace, I'll turn to God for peace by spending time reading my Bible and praying before getting things done. And so I'm just going to give you maybe 30 seconds to think about what is that thing that you want to do to change that bad habit. And I know it's not giving much time, but this kind of like the goal is hopefully you could take this home and you could reflect on it more. Just take to fill out the second part of that, take a little bit.
if you feel like you need to give it more thought, or it's like, I'm kind of drawing a blank. Um, you can even ask somebody uh, in the congregation, like, do you want to get like coffee or lunch, and we can just talk about like, what would you do if you're feeling this, or what you can ask people, like, how have you dealt with stress? Like, I'm stressed all the time. Here's how I deal with it. Ask somebody, how do you deal with that? Or like, when you're, you know, have a bad day, what do you, how do you deal with that? How do you find peace? And that can be kind of lost on what to say. But we are a people who drink from God as our flowing stream of joy. We don't settle for less. We're people who don't settle for less, but we go to God for our joy. Let's pray. Father, would you make yourself the focus and center of our joy, that we would go to you in all circumstances, in all situations, amidst all challenges and hardships and struggles. In your son's name we pray. Amen.